Well, I'm very happy to be with you today. I'm, I'm very grateful for the presence of each and every one. If you're visiting with us, we're very happy to have you. It's always an important occasion that brings us together like this, and for you to share this time with us, we're always very grateful. And I look forward to being with you tonight at 6 o'clock. And I've been studying world religions with you on Sunday nights. We call it Sunday night seminar. And I want to talk about Buddhism tonight. And I have to tell you, I'm not an expert in these particular matters, but I have prepared for some time to talk about these individual religions, which are very common in our world. We've talked about Judaism, modern-day Judaism, and we've talked about Islam. We've talked about Hinduism. Tonight we'll talk about Buddhism, and if you take those collectively together, you got most of the world right there as far as their religious position is concerned. And so I want to continue to consider those matters with you tonight, and I hope that you'll be with us. And because of that, I want to talk about and have a series of lessons this morning on Sunday morning starting today about Jesus. I spoke about Jesus last Sunday, the voice of Jesus, listening to the voice of Jesus how important that is. And today I want to start, uh, can follow that up. I'm talking about these world religions on Sunday night. I want to emphasize the life of Christ and the importance of Christ and what he means for us on Sunday morning. So the subjects that I'm picking are not out of a vacuum. I've tried to select the subjects that I hope that will be of help and needful and meaningful and cause us to grow as children of God. And if you're not a child of God, it'll motivate you to become one, to repent of your sins, confess your faith in Christ, be baptized into Christ. I hope that's the case today. Someone needs to repent of their life and change their life back around. As Paul talks about that matter in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, I hope you'll do it today. And I hope that you'll look and compare with the truth and see how it is distinguished from error and man-made religions. And I continue that this morning. Jesus, a teacher from God. The teaching which we learn from Jesus just did not come out of his own mind arbitrarily. It was the teaching of God. In fact, one thing you see about Jesus over and over again is he's a teacher. And I thought of this passage in John chapter 3, and, and thank you, Rich, for reading that for us today. Out of John chapter 3, he says, you're a teacher come from God. What a great compliment that was that Nicodemus gave to Jesus. You're a teacher. You've come from God. On one occasion, a rich young ruler came to Jesus. He said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? On one occasion... In fact, it was Matthew chapter 22. So on Tuesday of the final week of the Lord's earthly life, that the Pharisees came to Jesus. It was a time of conflict. And as they did, they sort of pushed forward their students called Herodians. The Herodians were people who gravitated toward the household of Herod, and they were sort of the stooges of the Pharisees, very strict. 
trying to make their man-made laws on the same level as God's law. And so they pushed these Herodians there before Jesus, and they said, um, we got a question, teacher. Is it right for them to pay the tax to Caesar or not? Then the Pharisees thought that they would take their turn. They would come to Jesus with regard to questions. Sadducees came along. Sadducees were another sect of the Jews that did not believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in angels. They said, now, teacher, there was a, man, a woman that had seven brothers as husbands consecutively. Whose will she be in the judgment? The common denominator of all these incidents in the life of Jesus is the fact that each one of these groups came to Jesus and called him teacher. Nicodemus calls him a teacher come from God. When I went through this particular matter, and I was thinking about it, I went through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm looking up this particular reference to Jesus being a teacher, and it's referred to him 48 times out of the gospel accounts. He's referred to as teacher more than any other thing. He's the Son of God. Why? He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of David. There are different uh, references to Jesus as to how he would be called. But for three and a half years as he's preaching and teaching, he's known as the teacher. Sometimes they'll use the term rabbi to refer to him. And it's clear there was no teacher like Jesus. There was no teacher that would give us the Word of God like Jesus would. And you and I on Sunday nights, we're going, we, and have talked about this one, we've talked about that one, but nobody compares to Jesus. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, John chapter 14, verse 6. So I'm going to study today Jesus as a teacher. And you see why I'm studying that. Because I want it clearly fixed in my mind, this is the real teacher come from God. You and I will be studying about teachers who said this and who said that with regard to our Sunday night seminar. But this is the teacher that came from God. This is the Son of God. The only begotten Son of God. And what can I learn from him as far as a teacher? Do you know as a teacher, some of the things that Jesus did, sometimes he would preach sermons. He wouldn't always do this, but sometimes he would. He would teach by preaching. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, perhaps the greatest sermon, I guess, that's ever been given is the Sermon on the Mount, Northern Galilee. And he starts it off with what we've come to call the Beatitudes. Translations work with how to translate that word, makarios, but basically it comes out beatitude due to translation tradition. It means happy. The original word goes back to the idea of spiritual prosperity. You will be a happy person. You will grow spiritually if you follow what Jesus has given us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The individual who realizes his bankrupt spiritual condition and thus wants to do something about it. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And he goes through this discussion of the Beatitudes as he begins this Sermon on the Mount. And it really shows us how we can truly have happiness in this life. So many people are looking for it. So many people are trying to find it. They're pursuing it and they miss it considerably simply because they're looking for this one or for that one when really true happiness is to be found in obedience and submission to the divine will of God, which is what Jesus is teaching us in these Beatitudes. And the authority that he uses as a teacher. You know, during that day and time, you had the law of Moses. That was an authority. And you had the rabbis. They were authorities. And you had different schools of rabbis. The Pharisees were experts in the matter of the rabbis and their uh, given positions on this and their given position on that. But what does Jesus do? You have heard of it been said of them of old time. Thou shalt not kill, but I say unto you. Or you have heard of it been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you. His authority. Only the Son of God would come forward and say, You've heard what the old law has said, but what I say transcends the old law. I say unto you, only the Son of God would have come along and said, you've heard what the rabbis said about this, you've heard what the rabbis have said about that, but I say unto you, the authority of Christ as a teacher, this is the authority that you now listen to. You do not listen to the old law, you do not listen to the teachings of the rabbis, you listen to me. Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you, and learn of me. Only the Son of God would have said something like that, as Jesus was. Jesus didn't come to destroy the old law, he came to fulfill it. And now it is fulfilled. Its purpose is complete. Now he is giving us the law that we are to live by. And when the people heard him as a teacher, see in this passage, Chapter 7 of Matthew, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. He was a teacher come from God. This is the real teacher. This is the one we need to listen to. Sometimes he would teach by means of sermons. One of the great sermons of the Lord, and I haven't spent much time with this one, we're more familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, is the sermon that's found in Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> now, the commentaries and expositors, they'll call this the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 24. And in Matthew chapter 24, beginning at about verse 1 through verse 34, Really, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jesus is explaining how that's going to take place, how that the people of his day, the Jewish people of his day, had rejected him by and large. Some, of course, had accepted him and were obedient to him, but by and large, they had rejected him. And God, in a chastening type of way, was going to punish that generation. And it happened. 
He's predicting it. He's prophesying about it. It comes about 40 years after the time Jesus gives this Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. I'm reminded of John chapter 1 and verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And so he speaks to them, and he tries to admonish them. God is going to chastise them because of their rejection, because of their rebellion. Uh, in Luke's account, he says, you know, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, as a hen would gather her chicks together, I would you, but you would not. You wouldn't accept the Christ of God. And God is going to chasten them for that. Josephus says one million Jews were slaughtered in AD 70. The end finally came in AD 73 with the fall of Masada in the southern portion of Judea. But the Romans had put it down. And they brought an end to Judaism. It was God's judgment upon a wicked people who had rejected their Savior. For 15 centuries, they had studied about it and read about it and prophets had prophesied about it. And now when the Christ came, they rejected him. And Jesus is preaching about that in Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse. The key to this chapter and the key to that sermon is found for us in about, um, well, it would be verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Jesus is describing the destruction of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel as the people of God because of their rejection, because of their refusal to obey His Word, and to submit to the Christ of God. And it's going to happen in that generation, verse 34. That's the first half of the sermon. Well, let me talk about the second half of the sermon. A second half of the sermon of the Olivet Discourse is a sermon about the end of time. And the second half of this sermon in Matthew chapter 24 talks about the second coming of Christ. And how that there's going to be a great day of judgment. And no one knows exactly when that will be. There'll be day setters and time setters who will try their very best to try to set the date to the second coming. But he says in verse 42 in the second section of the sermon, Therefore be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Matthew 24 and 42. The second half of this sermon is about the destruction of the world. And you can see the connection logically when he describes the destruction of the nation of Israel because of the rejection. And then he goes in the second portion of the sermon describing the destruction of the world because of the wicked who will not respond in faith to the Word of God. Now he's talking about second coming. And wicked and sinful men who will not obey the gospel and live according to the gospel of Christ will face the great judgment of God and there face the second death, eternal condemnation in a devil's hell. You can sort of see the connection with what he's saying in the sermon, Judaism and its rejection, but yet the world and its rejection take place, condemnation, punishment, 
destruction when he comes again. But no one knows when he will come again. And the date setters have tried their very best. And they're always wrong. Always wrong. I read a pamphlet one time. It said, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming again in 1988. He didn't. He didn't. They're always wrong. But one day that prophecy will take place. The teacher came from God and he taught us this. And how did he teach? Sometimes he taught in sermons, like the Sermon on the Mount or the Olivet Discourse, about how important it is for us to be pleasing in the sight of God and to be obedient to the will of God and to live our lives according to the divine plan of God. You know how Jesus, the teacher, came from God taught? Sometimes he taught by conversations. And you don't see many of the sermons of Jesus in, in the New Testament, but you do see conversations which he had with this person and that person. And that's what caught my eye when I was looking at John chapter 3. He's having a conversation with this ruler of the Jews named Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus came and pursued Jesus and came to him by night. And he gives him this high compliment we know that you are a teacher come from God because nobody can do the miracles which you do except God be with him. And Jesus completely ignores that and goes right to the point. Except a man be born again, he'll not enter to the kingdom of heaven. Except a man be born again, he'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus misses the point, verse 4. He said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Verse 4, here's the point again. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Got to be born of the water, the Spirit. Now the teacher come from God is having a personal conversation, and he's beginning to discuss these particular matters with Nicodemus, and we are thankful we have that discussion that conversation which Jesus had with this ruler of the Jews. Because now, he's telling us what it means to be born of the water and the Spirit. Nicodemus is thinking in physical terms. Jesus is thinking in spiritual terms. Can a man be born again once he is old? You see, Nicodemus is thinking physically, literally. But Jesus is speaking spiritually. He says, now, you know, a man is born of the water. And the Spirit, the Spirit here, has reference to the Word of God. And as one is thinking in a literal, physical sense, life is the result of a begettal and a delivery. Here an individual is born because of the process of the two. We understand that. If you can understand that in the physical sense, you can understand this in a spiritual sense. That to be born again, to be a child of God, there must be a begettal. And the Holy Spirit is the seed there. And the Holy Spirit reveals the Word, and that Word has been revealed, and that individual reads and studies and learns that Word, and through that process of development, of growing in faith, that person now is baptized into Christ for the remission of their sins. That's the water part 
of this new birth. There is a begettal. There is a delivery. There is the part the Holy Spirit plays in revealing the truth. There is the part that we play in being immersed in water for the remission of sins. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You've got to be born again. And you've got to be born again this way. All of this coming out of a conversation which Jesus had with this personal individual. And now I'm learning what it means to be born again. And put in the most simple of terms, the simplest way that we can describe it and explain it. Unless you hear the Word of God and the Gospel of Christ, and you obey that Word, and unless you are immersed in water, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, and you cannot be born again. Jesus is a teacher come from God. And he's told us just exactly what we've got to do in order to be pleasing in the sight of God. Sometimes he would have personal conversation. Sometimes he'd preach sermons to multitudes, like the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes, as a teacher from God, he would just have personal conversations with individuals that help us understand what New Testament Christianity is really all about. I'll tell you a conversation he had. He's going from Judea in the south, and he's headed to Galilee in the north. He's already cleansed the temple in Jerusalem. Now he's headed back toward Galilee, but to do that he goes right through the area of Samaria. Going through Samaria is almost like going into a different country where the Samaritans are living there. And the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other and wouldn't have anything to do with each other. But yet Jesus goes through, and as he comes to the well of Sychar, there he sits. The disciples have gone into town to buy food, and Jesus is there at the well. And a woman comes to Jesus with her water pot to draw water. And she's surprised that Jesus, a Jew, speaks to her, but he does. And as he does, he says, now, if you were to drink of this water that I have to offer, you'd never be thirsty again. He shifts gears, literally, from a literal conversation to a spiritual conversation. By verse 12 in John chapter 4, that's where I am. You're not greater than our father Jacob, she said, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, I'm in verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And you ought to notice the verbs that are used there. Continually drinking. You've got to choose this. You choose to continually drink from the teaching of Jesus. And he's trying to help her understand that this is a spiritual matter. And that if you accept him and accept his teaching, then it will be leading one to eternal life. So he goes from the literal to the spiritual, to help her understand God's plan for her life. And he does this in a personal conversation with the woman at the well. He talks about her marriage. She goes back. She leaves her water pot, goes back into town. She says, go out there and meet a guy that told me everything that I ever done. It's not really what Jesus did. He told about her mixed up marriages. But in turn, 
the people of Samaria, they go out and they ask Jesus, stay with us, stay with us. And Jesus does for three days. I don't think the story ends there. I think the story needs to remember Acts chapter 8. Whereby in Acts chapter 8, Philip goes to the cities of Samaria, preaching of the gospel, and they respond. And I can't help but think that the reason there's such a positive response to the preaching of the gospel in Samaria in the 8th chapter of the book of Acts is because of what Jesus did with a simple conversation with a woman at the well. And now he's there for some three days. And later, they're responding to the gospel. They understand it. He is the Messiah, the Christ of God. This is the teacher come from God. These other people that we're studying about on Sunday night are not. You know how the teacher taught? Sometimes he preached these sermons to multitudes. Sometimes he would teach people in conversation with them. That's amazing to me. The Lord of all life has time for you to talk to you and tell you what you need to hear. We now study it from the pages of the Bible. But one of the things that we see Jesus doing, and this is something that just about leaps up from the page, is the conflicts that Jesus has. He has one conflict after another. His whole life is focused around that. He has to face that over and over again. And the three and a half years that he's preaching and teaching on this earth, it's one of constant conflict. I remember reading something from Alexander Campbell years ago that really impressed me. He was a remarkable writer. And for his day, he had such understanding of New Testament Christianity I want you to know something right now. My faith doesn't go back to him. My faith goes back to the Word of God and what I read from that. But this man had insight. And he was talking about the baptism of Jesus. And he said, when Jesus was baptized and came up out of the water, he's riding in what is called the millennial harbinger. He unsheathed his spiritual sword and threw away the scabbard. I thought, wow, what a great way to say that. Because the life of Jesus from that point forward was nothing but conflict. And that spiritual sword was brought out. And being brought out, the Word of God was presented and was defended over and over again. Notice Luke chapter 4, conflict. Conflict is not something that we like to have. We really don't want conflict. We want people to accept us, and we really don't want any kind of disagreement with another person. That's just not going to be able to happen. Jesus had conflict. He goes to the little uh, synagogue there in Nazareth where he was raised, in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom... He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. 
And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He's going to read Isaiah 61. This is our Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. I think it's one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, Old or New Testament. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And you know they resented him for that. The own town of Nazareth resented Jesus. They took him out to the briar of the hill there to throw him off. And Jesus worked his way through the crowd and in turn escaped the threat of death which they were going to put upon him. Supernatural event? Yeah, I'd say it was. Where Jesus was able to escape the mob and go and on with his work in preaching and teaching. You'd say, well, how could that happen? How could that be? Well, God intervened. And you read statements in the gospel according to John, whereby John would use the phrase over and over again, his hour has not yet come. In other words, God has not decided that his son would die in that fashion on that day, but his hour had not yet come. God knew when the hour would come and the way in which he would die, and it would be on a hill called Calvary for the sins of all mankind. And his death was going to mean something. It was going to stand for something. It was not just another death whereby somebody would take someone they didn't like and kill them, but his death would be a death of atonement for the sins of all mankind, for all who will turn to him out of obedient faith. Conflict. We think sometimes we have conflicts today, and we do. We have a lot of conflicts today, and very controversial people, and conflicts come up all the time with regard to religion and politics and life and all that sort of matter. Jesus' life was constant conflict, and he would teach people by the conflict. He was the teacher come from God. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus faces another conflict. This is a conflict about taking the grain from the field and eating it on the Sabbath. A number of times Jesus would run into the Pharisees over this particular matter. The Pharisees did not like the idea of Jesus taking the grain from off the edges of the field and thus rubbing it. It's more like a barley type thing. He's rubbing the, the husks off the barley and eating the grain as they were traveling. This was according to the old law that he could do such, but they didn't want him to be doing that. They said, hey, why do your disciples do that? In other words, they're your disciples. You're responsible for what they do. They're eating grain on the Sabbath day. That's a violation of the Sabbath law. It wasn't a violation of the Sabbath law, but it was a trumped-up charge to try to find some fault with Jesus. But Jesus turns the tables on them. Do you know what they would do? Let me take a brief moment to talk about something of the background of the Jewish people of the first century. They had rules and regulations with regard to the Sabbath, for sure. And that they were not to leave their home on the Sabbath. They were not to journey 
uh, a lengthy period of time or place on the Sabbath. So what would they do? They would take their lunch and they would carry it like three quarters of a mile down the road and set it by that tree. And they would make out like, well, that's my home too. Now I can go that far. Then they'd take another lunch and carry it another three quarters of a mile and plant it by that tree or by that rock. Oh, that's my home too. So now I can go from my house to that tree on the Sabbath without violating the Sabbath. And I go from that tree over yonder to that rock another quarter of three quarters of a mile and nearly a mile without violating the Sabbath. And I can roam around and range out quite a bit with regard to the Sabbath because now I'm making out like the tree and the rock's my house too. That's Phariseeism trying to come up with some kind of legal loophole whereby I can get around the will and the word of God. Jesus says, they haven't violated your laws. They haven't violated God's law. Let me ask you a question about David. Did you ever read about David, your hero, went into the holy place and took the sanctified, consecrated bread, the show bread, and ate it? You don't find fault with David. Why do you find fault with me? And my point really today is not to explicate that particular issue. He's saying David made a mistake. David should not have done that. David was guilty of sin. But me and the disciples here are not guilty of sin. You wouldn't criticize David when he was guilty of sin, but you do criticize us who are not guilty of sin. It's the conflict. He's teaching by conflict. Sometimes he would teach by means of sermon. Sometimes he would teach by means of personal conversation. Sometimes he would teach by means of the conflict which was constantly coming up in his experience and in his life. Why? Because he's the teacher come from God. And everything he says is the truth. And everything he says is to be obeyed. And we're not to be like Pharisees who try to find a legal loophole around the Word of God and the teaching of Christ. But we are to submit to it. And when Jesus says to repent of sin, then I need to repent of my sins. And I need to change my life because the teacher from God has told me to do that. When Jesus says out of obedient faith, you're to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, then I'm to do it. Because the teacher come from God's told me to do that. Now don't try to find some kind of legal loophole around that particular matter like a New Testament Pharisee. I submit and I do what God has told me to do. Because Jesus is God. I want to study more about Jesus, the teacher come from God. This is the one we listen to. Because he's given us the divine will of God, the word of God. The teacher come from God is coming back one day. And we're going to have to face him in this earthly walk of life. I think the passage that sticks in my mind about that more than any other, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this whole chapter needs to be studied very carefully. And Lord willing, one of these days we'll do that. We'll just devote ourselves to a study of this great chapter of the Word of God. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. And he goes on through and talks about the conscious existence which we will have on life's other side. And how that one day we're going to face the judgment of God. And I'm thinking of verse 10. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he had done, whether good or bad. Therefore, verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are manifest, made manifest of to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. Because we know that we're going to face that great judgment day of Christ, it motivates us to live the kind of life that God has told us to live. We're all going to face that judgment seat of Christ. Notice the authority in that phrase, the judgment seat of Christ. I'm going to stand before him. He's going to be the judge. And what he has said in this life is going to be the standard by which I'm judged. And I must be sure that I have obeyed the teacher come from God and that I live for him and according to his divine will. Am I speaking to someone today who has never obeyed the teacher born from a teacher that's come from God? Am I speaking today to someone who's never repented or been baptized into Christ? I urge you to do it today. If I am speaking to someone who has, but you've been unfaithful to it, now's the time to change your life. Now's the time to make it right and to be what God wants you to be before it is too late and we face the day of judgment. We certainly haven't exhausted the subject today, but it is a good beginning for us to study the teacher that has come from God. Now I pray that you take it to heart. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?